Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, Haynes Creek. It is good to be with you today. Thanks for joining us today on this Sunday. It's great to be worshiping with you. Um, if it's your first time, I just want to say a special welcome to you. We are thrilled and excited that you are here worshiping with us. Would love a chance to follow up with you, let you know how much we appreciate your visit and being our guest today. So if you don't mind, uh, if you could stop by our welcome table right out there in the hallway. We have a free gift we'd love to put in your hands as our way to show our appreciation to you today. And church, we are going to continue in our summer sermon series. So this summer, we are spending some time really focusing in on this idea, this, this topic concept of what theologians throughout the centuries have called spiritual disciplines. Spiritual disciplines. The idea comes from uh, this verse in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7, that says we are to discipline ourselves for godliness. So there's this idea of growing in the Lord involves disciplining ourselves. It involves uh, the, these avenues these means that God has given us to learn about him, to grow closer to him, to deepen our love and faith of him. So we're calling this habits of grace because that's really what they are. They are meant to be habits. These, these ideas of, of personal disciplines, these spiritual disciplines that we talk about are not just a, a one-time thing, right? We don't just read our Bible once. We don't just pray once. No, they are, they are to be incorporated as, as every uh, part of our lives, everyday part of our lives. They are to be habits and they are grace. They're God's grace to us, I think so often we can view spiritual disciplines as this just drudgery and, and obligation, like, well, I better read my Bible, I better go to church, because if I don't, then I'm a bad Christian, and then God won't love me, and, and I'll just feel guilty, and, and I better do it now, and, or sometimes we just view it as, well, I just got to do this, because God says to, so I'm just going to check it off my to-do list, boom, read the Bible, I'm good to go, let me get back to the important stuff of my day, and that's, that's not at all how the Bible presents it. It presents it as these avenues, these means, these opportunities that God has given to us in his love for us to invite us in, to draw us in deeper into his presence, deeper into love and faith and knowledge of him. So that's what we've been talking about. We've talked a lot about what we call personal spiritual disciplines, these things that we do kind of one-on-one on our own. We talked about reading the Bible. Is that something we do on Sundays? Yes, absolutely. Is that something we do in, in community? Yes, absolutely. But we kind of focused in on this idea of a personal devotional time with the Lord. What does that look like? Well, it should involve a lot of Bible reading, right? Because this is how we get to know God. This is how he's revealed himself to us. We talked about prayer. We talked about meditation. We talked about fasting. And a lot of these are, are what we call personal spiritual disciplines, things that we do one-on-one to deepen our faith and our love and, and our relationship with God. And, and today, uh, we're going to start transitioning into less personal one-on-one stuff and more kind of corporate what we do as believers with the community, with the church, with those around us in our lives, because personal or spiritual disciplines are not just personal, they're also corporate. They're also meant to be done in community together with the church as the church in the place that God has placed us. So we're going to start that transition today with a topic, a personal, a spiritual discipline uh, that, that kind of bridges those two things that uh, is, is both personal and corporate, and that is worship. Worship. So that's where we're going today. We're going to talk about worship personally and worship corporately. We'll dig into all of that. And if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to our passage today. You can see there is Revelation chapter 4. We're going to Revelation. It's the last book of your Bible. So open up to the end. If you hit maps or a concordance, you've gone too far. Just back up a little bit and you get to the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 4 is where we're going. And let me just give a, a little uh, five-minute background on Revelation to make sure we're understanding 
understanding this properly and in its context. Uh, I, I, I will try my best not to go too long on this. I really nerd out on this kind of stuff. But it's important for us to know because there's a lot of confusion surrounding the book of Revelation. But the, it's not meant to be confusing. It's not meant to be something that we're like, oh, that's just, you know, I'm not going to read that because that's too difficult to understand. No, it, it's it's God's word to us, and it's meant, just like every other part of scripture, to be beneficial to us. So it's meant to be read, meant to be studied, meant to be understood. So Revelation is a letter that was written to seven different churches in what is now modern-day Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. So John, the Apostle John, is the one who wrote Revelation, and he writes it most likely at the end of the first century A.D., and he's writing from the island of Patmos, where he is exiled, imprisoned, basically just left there to die due to his faith. So he's been persecuted. He's been put on the island of Patmos just to, to get away from everybody, stop making noise for Jesus, get out of here. And they put him on this island and just kind of leave him there to die. But on that island, God visits him and gives him this vision for these churches. So Revelation is first and foremost a letter to the church. It's also written in what we call apocalyptic literature, which was very prominent at this time and at the end of, you know, let's say like 200s BC, that kind of time frame, very popular in Jewish culture was this apocalyptic literature, which is very uh, symbolic and heavy in figurative language and symbols and, and weird visions and, and, and weird things going on, but it's all meant to give this message to those who are being persecuted. It's a message of hope to those facing difficult times, usually, specifically, persecution for their faith. So that's Revelation. And, and Revelation is known for its symbolism, its talk of the future, and, and really its debate about what it actually means. So uh, that's, that's what's going on. And, and look, there's a lot of opinions about Revelation. Like I said, there's a lot of debate. I'm not going to get into that or my own personal views on Revelation. If you have questions about that, let me know, and, and we can set up a time to talk for sure, because I love this stuff. But, but I would say my my understanding of Revelation is that Revelation speaks far more to the present than it does the future. It has more to say about what is going on right here, right now, than it does what is coming down the road. So in Revelation, that word revelation comes from a Greek word, apocalypsis, apocalypsis, and what that word means is uncovering. It means uncovering. So what Jesus is doing in the book of Revelation is he is pulling back the curtain he is uncovering what ultimate true reality is. What he's doing is, is he's saying, get your eyes off, your focus off of what's happening in the world, which we can just get so lost in what's happening in our world and the culture and what's going on. And he's saying, get your eyes off of that and look to me. Focus on me because what I'm doing, who I am, that is ultimate reality. This is just a snippet, just a, a glimpse of what we see actually happening in the world. And God, in Revelation, is pulling back the curtain and giving us a glimpse behind the scenes, behind the curtain, of what's really going on in history and in reality. That's what's going on in the book of Revelation. So Revelation chapter 4 comes right after John writes a specific word for each of these seven churches. So Revelation starts out with these letters to the seven churches, and then it gets into the, the craziness in chapter four, right? So that's what, what is going on here. It, it comes right after a specific word to these seven churches who are all facing some level of persecution or temptation towards cultural compromise. All of them are facing something along those lines, and all of them are seeing 
firsthand, up close and personal, the influence and the power of the Roman Empire at this time. At this time, at the end of the first century, Rome is, is kind of at its height, right? Like it is just, nobody's messing with Rome. Everybody's seeing Rome and they're seeing the glory and the power and the influence of Rome. And everybody's thinking at this time, like, man, nobody's going to be messing with Rome. We are going to be in the Roman Empire forever and ever because these are the big boys on the block and nobody's coming near the power of Rome. And it was far reaching. It was everywhere. And, and this, the churches at this time are seeing how powerful and influential and also how wicked and evil Rome is and being faced with the persecution for their faith. So that's what's going on with these seven churches. And in chapter four, John is given a glimpse of what true and ultimate reality is. And it's all about getting your eyes off of what's going on with Rome and on to what's happening with God. So let's read what's happening here in Revelation chapter four. Starting in verse one, it says this. After this, I looked and there was in heaven an open door. The first voice that I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, come up here and I will show you what, make, make, what must take place after this. Immediately I was in the spirit and there was a throne in heaven and someone was seated on it. The one seated there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone, a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their head. Flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. Seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Someone, something like a sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had the face of a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Each of the four living creatures had six wings. They were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stop saying, holy, 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 the Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. So in this passage, John, through a vision, is invited into the throne room of heaven. He's invited into the throne of God and what's happening there before the throne, in the throne room, what's happening? It's a worship service. It's a worship service. God is being worshiped and praised as he sits on his throne. So this passage teaches us two things about worship that are gonna direct our time for today. So two things that we learn about worship here in this passage. The first one, worship is adoration. Worship is adoration. If you're taking notes, write that down. Worship is adoration. Now, when we think of, of adoring something or someone or having adoration for something, it, it's more in the lines of this romantic kind of lovey, feely kind of language, but what, what adore means is to regard something or someone with the utmost esteem, love, respect, honor, or to pay divine honor to someone or something. That's what it means to adore. And this is where worship begins. If we're going to truly worship God, it starts right here 
in our hearts with adoration. With adoration, because what we adore, we will worship. This passage in Revelation starts in chapter 4, verse 1, with, with John describing what he sees, right? That's what's going on here. It says, after this I looked, and there was in heaven an open door. I looked, and there was in heaven an open door. Now, I don't love the translation here, I'll be honest with you. I, we, I preach out of what's called the Christian Standard Bible. Many of you guys use that, or the ESV, or NASB, or, or any other number of, of good translations. But we preach out of the CSB. I like it because it's, it's easy to read, it's easy to understand, and it's a very accurate translation. But I don't, I don't love the translation here. I feel like there, there's something missing here. Because what's, what's translated as, as there was, it's just describing what John sees, is actually the Greek word edu. Now, the ESV pulls that Greek word in and says, behold. I don't love that either because I don't know, like, when's the last time you used the word behold in your everyday language? Behold, I see before me. Like, we don't, we don't talk like that, right? If you do it, like, good for you. But I, I, I don't talk like that. I don't really hear many people saying behold in their everyday language. So I don't love that translation either. But, but what the word means is look, look. It's a marker of attention. And it's written as a command. So when John says, after this I looked, he says, after this I looked, Look, he's saying, I looked and now I want you to look. People who are reading this, look, pay attention to what I'm seeing. I see this and I want you to see it too. He's drawing our attention to something. And this is the dominant command throughout Revelation. It's the dominant command. We see this over and over again. John uses it as a way to, again, get our eyes off of what's happening here, off of what's happening in our lives, and on to what's happening with God. And that's exactly what's happening here. He's saying, stop, look at, stop looking at this stuff and look over here. And what does he see? He sees a door that leads to the throne room. He sees a door that leads to the throne of God. And again, this is where, this is where worship starts and flows out of. The throne, and more specifically, the one seated on the throne, who John refers to as the one who lives forever and ever. We know who that is, right? It's God. God is the one on the throne. God is the one who is eternal. God is the one we are to worship. And this is where worship starts. This is where worship begins, with getting our eyes off of our world, off of what's happening in our lives and our desires and what we want, and on to the throne of God. On to God. That's where worship starts. That's where adoration is going to grow and cultivate in our hearts. That's where our love for God is going to grow. It, it's by getting our eyes off of us, off of our world, and on to God and his throne. See, right now, God is reigning on his throne in all power and love and grace and, and holiness and glory and honor, like all of these things. God, right now, right this very second, is reigning over everything. But we don't, we don't always live in that reality, do we? We don't always live in that reality. We, we tend to ignore that reality and live in our own alternate fake version of reality. And here, here's what I mean by that. We don't live as, as people who are, are focused solely and devoted solely to the throne of God, to God, right? We may say that we do, and especially those of us who are believers in here, we would say, yes, yes, Travis, I worship God. I'm devoted to him. But oftentimes our lives, if we were to look at them, are lived out in more devotion to these false thrones, not, not the throne of God, but these fake alternate thrones that we devote ourselves to. That's what each of us does. We all have these things in our lives that we devote ourselves to, that we give our love, our attention, our resources to, right? 
So we, we don't worship at the throne of God. We, we tend to worship at our own little, little baby thrones, right? Our little fake thrones is what we'll call them today. And on that fake throne, we put any number of things. Ultimately, it's ourselves that we're worshiping instead of God. But we'll put, you know, anything that we're devoted to in life. It could be our jobs. It could be any selfish desire. It could be money, materialism, wealth, prosperity, approval, comfort, safety, sex. Uh, Our hobbies even can become a throne that we worship at. Even these good things in life, we can elevate them to the point where now they've become a throne that we're worshiping at, that we're giving ourselves to. And we worship those things more than God. We worship at those thrones rather than the true ultimate throne. And again, you might be thinking, no, Travis, I don't. I I worship God. I worship God. Well, this week uh, we were uh, doing this Bible study with our kids this summer. My wife found it. I forget the name of it, but it's a really, so far we're only a few days into it, but it's it's been really good. And it's this uh, Bible study for kids. It's based on the gospel and it's based on the five solas of the Reformation, if you're familiar with that. Um, So it kind of walks through these basic concepts of God through that lens. So it, it's been really good so far. And this week we were talking about loving God. And, and the verse for this week was uh, Deuteronomy chapter six, which is where we get the great commandment from, love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and might. That comes from Deuteronomy chapter six. So there was this part in that where it's trying to teach the kids about what it means to love God. And, you know, we my kids grow up with a pastor. So we talk about loving God enough right around the house. So they know that they're supposed to love God. Like that's the answer. When we talk about, do you love God? They know the answer to that is yes. So we were trying to walk the, through them with this and we're like, do you love God? Yes. We're like, what do you love more than God? And they were like, I don't, that, that, nothing. I love God. I'm supposed to love God. That's what we do. You know, there's seven. So it's a, it's a little hard for them to grasp that concept. But my wife was trying to talk, no, there's other things that you like that you love. And, and the kids came up, uh, Libby came up with TV. She loves TV a lot. And, and Zayden came up with video games, loves that a lot. And the question next was, uh, do you love those things more than God? And they're like, no, of course not. I don't, I don't know. No, we don't love those more than God. We, we love God. It was like, okay, let's try to walk through. So I was talking with them a little bit more about that, trying to get them to understand, no, we, we want to love God. We say we love God, but we don't always love God the most, right? So I was talking with him. I was like, so when you go to church on Sunday, when mommy drives you to church, because daddy's already there, when mommy drives you to church, you, you maybe were watching TV that morning or you were playing a video game that morning. Are you thinking about your video game? Are you thinking about TV? They're like, oh yeah, 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 I am. I was like, okay. Are, when, you, when you're at church and you're supposed to be, you know, focused on the Bible story and, and, and worship, are, are sometimes you thinking about your TV or your iPad or, or the video games? They're like, oh yeah, yeah, I am. I was like, okay, are there some times where when you get to church, are you like, man, I wish I could be home playing video games right now? Oh, yeah, yeah, all the time. I'm like, okay, good. That's what we're talking about, right? That's, that's what it means to love something more than God. Our attention is on those things. Our love, our devotion, our time, our resources are on those things rather than God. Rather than God. So we give our, our time, our devotion, our resources, not to God, but to these things, these things that we worship. That's what worship is. And look, this is why our worship is stale sometimes. This is why when we come to church, you don't have to raise your hands, but sometimes we just feel like we're going through the motions. We're just like, man, I, I know I'm supposed to be here, so that's why I'm here, but I don't really want to be here. I don't really want to do this. This is why our worship is stale. This is why our, our devotion time is lacking is because we'd rather be at the lake. We'd rather be on the golf course. We'd rather be in front of the TV. We'd rather, we'd rather scroll through social media more. We'd rather, we'd rather fill up our Amazon card or or watch that next episode than come to worship or open up our Bibles and spend some time in prayer. We're all like that. 
myself included. That's worshiping the things of this world. That's worshiping at our fake little baby thrones rather than the throne of God. Our worship will start, our worship will grow, our love and devotion and adoration to God will grow when we get our eyes, our focus, our attention, our desires, our love off of the things of this world, off of ourselves and our own desires and fix them on God and his throne. That's where worship begins. Worship starts with our attention. What are we giving our attention to? What are we giving our desires to? What are we giving our time and our resources to? The answer to those questions will tell you what you actually worship. And if we wanna worship God, if we wanna step into his true ultimate reality and worship him rather than the things of this world, it starts with getting our attention on him. It starts with what John says, look over here, look over here. Look at what God is doing. Look at what really is going on in the world. So when, when John looks at the throne, what does he see? What does he see? Let's walk through Revelation 4 here. He, he walks in to the throne and he sees, verse 3, the one seated on the throne was the appearance of jasper and carnelian stone. Now, this makes very little sense to us today, but during this time, jasper and carnelian stone were symbols of beauty and majesty and glory. So when John walks in and he sees God, he's overcome and overwhelmed with the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God. And all he can do is like, it's kind of like this. That's what Revelation is a lot of. Like, I can't put into words what I'm actually seeing, so let me find something in this world that we can kind of compare it to in a very limited sense, right? But these were symbols of glory and power and majesty, and that's exactly what John sees when he, when he looks at God. He sees that. He sees his glory and majesty, and he's overcome by it. So that's who's seated on the throne. Then he sees, he continues on describing when he sees a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald surrounded the throne. Another way to translate that is, is behind the throne. He sees this rainbow. And look, I know we're living in 2023 and our American culture has completely hijacked the rainbow. We just finished Pride Month, right? You see, you see a rainbow flag. We don't thank God typically in this culture. We think something along the lines of the LGBTQ and all the other letters that are now attached. I can't keep up anymore. There's so many. We think of that. That's what, what our culture directs it to. So our culture has taken a meaning, a symbol from God, and they've attached it to something that is sinful and evil and wicked, and they celebrate that. But that's not what the rainbow means. The rainbow is meant to direct our minds and our attention back to what God did with Noah. After the flood, what did God do? He put a rainbow in the sky, and he told Noah, this is a reminder of my faithfulness, of my promises, of my mercy. When we see a rainbow, we're not supposed to think of the... the LGB, whatever, community, culture, whatever that is. We're not meant to think of that. We are meant to think of God and his faithfulness and his mercy. And that's what John is being reminded here. When we see God, we see and know and remember and celebrate his promises, his faithfulness, his mercy. All right, let's keep going. What else does he see? Jump down to verse five for me. Verse five, flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder came from the throne. So coming out of the throne is, is thunder and lightning. And these throughout scripture, even going back to the Old Testament, these uh, thunder and lightning, when it's spoken of, they are symbols of God's power and greatness. Anytime God appears in the Old Testament, he appears with thunder and lightning. 
because that's meant to remind us of, of power and, and maybe a little bit of terror, right? A little bit of dread sometimes because that's how powerful God is. Our kids have been a little disappointed in, in the afternoons. I don't, I don't know if it's happened at your house, but in the afternoons, it just seems like it, there's just a storm that comes or like a fake storm, like it just kind of thunders a little bit and then, you know, an hour later it's gone. But in the afternoons, we've been trying to take our kids to our neighborhood pool. And, you know, because I'm, I'm done with work at that point, Mila's done with her nap, so that's the time that we can usually go. And, and there's a lifeguard at, at our pool and, you know, they're just following the rules. But the rule is when, when they hear thunder, no matter if it's raining, no matter if there's lightning, no matter what, if they hear thunder, shut down. Everybody's got to get out of the pool and you got to wait for 15 minutes of thunder-free activity. Okay, so as soon as it thunders again, the clock starts over again. And that's exactly what's been happening. Like every time we take them to the pool, it's like we're swimming for five minutes and then boom, thunder. We're like, all right, we got to get out. And our kids are like, ah, oh, can we just wait? Can we just wait? And Kendra and I are like, no, this is not, this is, we're just going to end up waiting here because it's going to keep thundering. Let's just go home, right? So we've been doing that. One day we're like, okay, it's, it's going to thunder. We see the storm clouds coming. Like, let's just, let's just take a walk and so let's just go for a walk. So we go for a walk and like halfway through our walk, it's like, it's getting worse and the thunder's getting louder and our kids are starting to get scared. Like, oh, we should go home. We should go home. Like, all right, yeah, we should go home. Let's go home. So we turn around and man, on our way back, like, I don't know, it got really close and it was really loud. And like, what happens when you're, when you're outside and you hear lightning or thunder, like it does it doesn't matter how old you are. Like, you, you jump a little bit. You're like, oh, whoa, that was a little scary. That was a little scary. Like, thunder and lightning should remind us of God's power and greatness. Man, we have, we have so domesticated God, and we've just put him in this little box that, that God, you are, you are all loving, which means that you love in the ways that I want you to love. And, and, and no, I want you to be so simple that I understand everything about you. We've robbed God of his mystery and his power and his greatness. And what this is directing our attention to is saying, no, God is, God is bigger and more powerful than we could ever wrap our minds around. When we come before the presence of God, when we look at God, when we see him for who he is, man, we should come and be like just, just in awe of him, of his power and his greatness and his majesty. That's what John's telling us here. When you see God, you will see his greatness. All right, let's keep going. Verse five, what else does he see? Verse five, flashes of lightning and, and thunder. And then also before the throne, there were seven fiery torches were burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. Now, it doesn't mean that there's seven holy spirits. I had a buddy of mine read this, and he's like, Travis, there's seven holy spirits. What does that mean? I'm like, no, that's not what he's talking about. Calm down. Relax a little bit. Seven is the number of completeness in Scripture. So when we see seven, it's just meaning complete, whole, and it's pointing to God. So when we see the seven spirits of God, this is how Revelation refers to the Holy Spirit. The Spirit, the Spirit of God is the Holy Spirit and, and, he, and he comes and he's viewed as, as fire. The other thing fire teaches us in scripture is that, that fire purifies, right? It reveals what's really there. And that's when we come before the throne of God, man, nothing is hidden, nothing is kept from God. All is laid bare before the throne of God. And that should cause some humility in us, right? It should remind us of our, of our place before the creator God. And then what else does he see? Let's keep going. Verse six, something like a sea of glass similar to crystal was also before the throne. Now this is important. This is important here, especially in, in, as it relates to where we are today as Christians living in this culture. So the sea in Revelation represents and symbolizes everything that is oppositional to God. Everything that opposes God is, is symbolized as coming from the sea or out of the sea or is the sea. So that's important to know. And then throughout your Old Testament and even throughout ancient culture at this time, the sea was viewed as just this, 
this place of chaos and it can't be tamed and it's a little terrifying and anything can happen and it's usually going to be bad and, and things are just, things are really scary out on open waters and in the sea. So the sea is just representative of evil and chaos and turmoil and uncertainty. And that's exactly what the churches of Revelation are walking through. And they're seeing the power and the influence and the wickedness of Rome. They're seeing the persecution amped up more and more against the people of God. And that can be scary. That can be terrifying. And it seems at times, especially for these churches, it would have seemed like the chaos, like the evil, the wickedness, the opposition to God is winning. Because Rome is just, it's too powerful. It's too influential. Now think about our culture. And again, our, our culture is going further and further away from the things of God, right? And we're not facing the type of persecution that the first century was, but, but that might be coming, y'all. We need to prepare ourselves. That might be coming. The more wicked our culture grows, the more oppositional to God our culture grows, the more sin and wickedness is celebrated by our culture, the more that's gonna turn on us, the more that's gonna turn against us. And at times we can see the chaos and the wickedness and the evil and the brokenness of this world and it can feel overwhelming. It can feel like maybe God is a little absent. Like maybe he's taken his hand off the wheel a little bit. It can feel like the darkness is winning. But when we, again, when we see ultimate reality, what's really going on, we see our fake reality where the sea, the chaos, the evil is just raging and it's overcoming everything and it's spreading everywhere. But when we look at the sea before the throne of God in ultimate reality, what's the sea? It's still, it's calm. What this should remind us of is God is over the chaos. God is stronger and greater and more powerful and the evil and the wickedness of this culture. It is still before God. Chaos and evil bow before the throne of God. He is in full sovereign control over everything at all times. It might not always feel that way. It might not always look that way, but that's why we gotta get our eyes off of the fake reality and onto real reality where our God is sovereignly reigning over everything. And he holds everything in the palm of his hand. That's true reality. That is our God. So what, what John is doing here, what this should stir within us is when we see our God for who he truly is, when we see him as, as awesome and powerful and great and mighty and holy and perfect and full of all glory and honor and bigger and better than everything in this world, it should stir something up within us, church. It should stir some affections. It should cause us to see like, wow, wow, God, wow. You are bigger, you are greater, you are more powerful than, than anything else in this world. And when we compare God for who he truly is with our little baby thrones that where we worship, man, that should pale in comparison. We think these things are worth it, but then we see someone who truly is worthy. It should stir something up within us. And this is what we see, right? God's not alone in this throne room. Who, who else is there with us? Verse four, around the throne were 24 thrones and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. 
And jump down a little bit with me uh, down to the end of verse 6 here. Four living creatures covered with eyes in front and in back were around the throne on each side. The first living creature was like a lion. The second living creature was like an ox. The third living creature had a face like a man. And the fourth living creature was like a flying eagle. Okay, so what's going on here? Because again, we can get lost in the figurative language here of Revelation. The 24 elders are symbolic of the people of God. As you read Revelation, you'll see that the 24 is made up of the 12 tribes of Israel and the 12 apostles of God. You bring that together, and it's 24, which means the full number, the full allotment, the full people of God. So in the throne room, who's with God? His people. His people are there with him. And then the four creatures, we won't get into all that, but the four creatures symbolize creation. Four was the number for creation in Jewish culture at this time, so four symbolizes creation creation. So what this is telling us is in the throne, before the throne of God are all of God's people and all of creation. And what are they doing? What are they doing? They're worshiping. They're worshiping. They're worshiping. Look look at what is said, four living creatures in verse 8. Each of the four living creatures had six wings and they were covered with eyes around and inside. Day and night, they never stopped saying, holy, 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 Lord God, the Almighty, who was, who is, and who is to come. All of creation at all point is crying out in worship to God. You are holy. You are almighty, all might, all strength, all power, and you are eternal who was and is and is to come. You are everlasting. Verse 9. Whenever the living creatures give glory, honor, and thanks to the one seated on the throne, the, the one who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before the one seated on the throne and worship the one who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne and say, Our Lord and God, you are worthy to receive glory and honor and power because you have created all things and by your will they exist and were created. When we see God for who he truly is, when we get our eyes off of our own desires, off of the things of this world, and we fix them on God, it should cause a reaction in our hearts, church. It should do something within us. And I'm not talking about just these little butterflies and feelings that we get. No, it should cause a desire to love and adore our God. To give him all the glory, because we see him as more worthy, more worthwhile of worship than anything else we could compare it to. And this is where if we really want to worship God, if we really want to have this heart and devotion to God, it starts with that. It starts with adoration. It starts with getting our eyes off of what's going on over here, off of our lives, off of our little baby thrones, off of these other things that we worship, and on to God himself. So we need to ask ourselves, what, what am I devoted to? What am I giving myself to? God created us to worship, right? We are, we are all worshiping something at some point, at every point, at any point. We're all worshiping something. So we need to ask ourselves, what, what is that that I'm worshiping? What throne am I really worshiping at? What throne am I giving worthy to, giving glory to? What, what, what throne am I adoring? And if it's not God, let's repent of that and fix our eyes on him, church. Adore him. And look, that's the second thing that we, worship, that we see about worship. So worship is adoration number two, and we'll end here. Worship is response. Worship is response. 
That's stuff that's stirred up in our hearts. That's stuff that, that revelation is meant to draw out of us, these emotions, this attention that we're supposed to fix our eyes and our mind to. That, that, that's that thing that's, that's working in your heart that's saying, this stuff is fake, it's not real, it's not worthy, and, and this is, get your eyes on God. When that, that stuff happens, it's meant to draw a response out of us, church. It's not meant to just stay within and just, you know, push it down like, oh, that's just, you know, some bad indigestion or maybe I'm just hungry or, yeah, it's really hot in here and, and that's what it is. So, so no, that's, that's not, no, no, that might be the Lord speaking to you. He's trying to draw something out of you, trying to work in your heart. Worship is meant to be a response. When we see God for who he really is, when we see him as more worthy than anything else, it should lead to a response. And we respond personally and we respond corporately. So personally, what does personal worship look like? It looks like devoting our lives to him, giving him everything, living for him, following him, loving him more than the things of this world. This is what Revelation 12, one through two says. Paul writes, therefore, brothers and sisters, in view of the mercies of God, what that means is, is in view of who God is and what he's done for us, this should be our response. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true what, church? It's okay, say it. What? Worship. This is your true worship. Do not be conformed to this age, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. What, what is worship? What does it mean to worship God as a follower of Jesus? It's this, it's giving our lives to him. It's giving our lives to him. You might think, well, I thought worship was me in my car driving home from work singing whatever songs on the, like my worship music. I thought that was worship, Travis. Yeah, that, that is. I thought worship was, was reading my Bible. Yeah, it is. I thought worship was coming to church. Yeah, it is. But if we're just singing some music, if we're just reading the Bible, we talked about this when we talked about scripture reading. If we're just reading and it's not sinking down deep into our hearts and causing us to live and be more like Jesus, that's not real worship. That's not real. We're just singing some songs and we're reading some words and nothing's really happening in our hearts and lives. True worship is giving full devotion to God. It's saying, I'm going to live for you more than the things of this world, more than my desires. I don't want what I want. I want, I want what you want, Jesus. I want to live for you. That's worship. That's what God wants, right? God's, God's not interested in just saving us and rescuing us from hell, right? Like he wants more than that. He doesn't want to just be part of our lives. He wants all of us. He wants all of our lives. He wants full devotion, adoration, worship to him. That's the response. That's how we know we're worshiping when we would rather live for Jesus, follow Jesus more than our own desires, more than the things of this world. And this is why it's important to remember that, that, that worship starts with attention. Because here's the reality, church. We become what we behold. We become what we behold. What we behold, what our attention is on, what our focus is on, what our lives are being lived out for, what our devotion is towards, that's what we're going to become. If it's not Jesus, we're not going to become more like Jesus. We talk about this all the time. We don't just magically drift into holiness, right? We don't just wake up one day after doing nothing and not following God, walking with God, obeying God, studying God, learning from God, gathering together with the people of God. We don't just wake up one day after not doing any of that and just, oh, I'm all of a sudden more like Jesus today. That's not how it works. 
That's not how it works. We don't drift into holiness. We drift into sin and worldliness. We become what we behold. If you want to be more like Jesus, we got to get our hearts fixed on Jesus. We have to behold him. We have to, again, get our eyes fixed on him. And then we respond to that with obedience, with following his ways, with walking with him, with loving him more than the things of this world. So what are we beholding, church? What are we giving our lives to? So that's how we respond personally with worship is through obedience through giving our lives to him. And then we respond corporately. We are to worship together with the people of God, right? We're to gather together as the people of God to worship God. This is what we're called to do. That's what the church means. That, that word church in scripture, that, that basically, it just means the gathering of God's people. That's what the word came to mean. It's just the gathering of God's people when they get together, that's the church. That's the church. You're not I mean, we're part of the universal church at large, but when we're at home by ourselves, worshiping, reading our Bibles, but, but, but the church in scripture, when it says the church, it means the gathered body of believers, the gathered people of God. That's the church. So God has called us to gather. And when, he, when we gather, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to worship. We're supposed to worship. And what does it mean to worship? What does it look like to worship? What, is, what does worshiping together look like? Well, the first thing is just simply gathering together. That's worship. Just being here is worship. Acts 2, 46 through 47 says, every day they devoted themselves to meeting together in the temple and broke bread from house to house. They ate their food with joyful and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. Every day the Lord added to their number those who were being saved. Every day they devoted themselves to meeting together as the people of God. Every day. I hear people say sometimes that we, we just gotta get back to that, that first century church mindset. I'm like, all right, cool, let's get together every day. Well, you know, I can't do that. I can't really do that. That's what the early church did. I saw a study this week that uh, professing evangelical Christians, so Christians who would say, yes, I believe the Bible, I believe Jesus is God, I believe he's the one that saves, I trust in him for salvation, I wanna live for him. The average attendance for those people, Bible-believing Christians, church on a Sunday, the average attendance is once a month now. Once a month. And I think we can all recognize that that's probably the case here too. Once a month. And these are people that were like, yes, I live for Jesus. Coming once a month. That's just become accepted practice. And I talk to pastors all the time. A lot of buddy of mine, lead pastors in, in other places, in different places. I'm like, hey, what are you seeing with attendance? Yeah, about 50% of our people are here once a month. That's where we're at now. That's where we're at. Just a simple act of gathering together has become less important in recent years. I'm sure, there's probably a bunch of reasons for that. We don't won't get into that today, but, but we're called to gather. This is important. This matters. Just being here on a Sunday with the people of God is a big part of our worship. Just being here. And when we're here, what do we do? One of the things we do is sing. Y'all, we sing. Why is that? It's not just because music is, is cool and fun and Johnny's got a good voice and Alex has a good voice and they play nice and it sounds good. No, we are meant to sing. This is what Psalm 100 says. Let the whole earth shout triumphantly to the Lord. Serve the Lord with gladness. Come before him with joyful songs. Acknowledge that the Lord is God. He made us and we are his, his people, the sheep of his pasture. Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Enter his courts with praise. 
Give thanks to him and bless his name for the Lord is good and his faithful love endures forever. His faithfulness through all generations. Throughout the Bible, we are commanded as the people of God to gather together and sing. Why is that? Because there's just something about music and singing that just connects our heart with our heads, right? It connects our knowledge of God to our love for God. And it just, it brings those emotions, it stirs those emotions out of us. That's what music and, and singing is meant to do. It's a way for us to acknowledge who God is and what he's done for us. So when you come to church, sing. Thankfully, it doesn't say that we have to sing good because I'd be out. All right, I would not be able and allowed to sing. So that's not a requirement. So if you're like, man, I, I sound terrible when I sing. Me too. Me too. We still sing. We sing. So when you come to worship and we're playing these songs, it's not meant for you to just sit there and enjoy some nice music. It's meant for us to together as the people of God to sing. That's why we have the words up there, right? So we can sing along. We're not meant to just sing the words that, the songs that we know. Like, I've never heard this song. Okay, the words are there. Sing. Will you be offbeat a little bit? Yeah, so am I. It's okay. It's okay. We'll do this together. We are meant to sing. We're meant to fellowship and encourage one another to, to be in relationship, to truly get to know one another and be in each other's lives. This is what Hebrews 10, 24 and 25 says. And let us consider one another in order to provoke love and good works, not neglecting to gather together as some are in the habit of doing. It's good to know that the first century church was having these issues too, right? It's not just us today. They were having this issue too. As some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging each other and all the more as you see the day approaching. What does the author of Hebrews tell us to do when we gather? To encourage one another, to provoke and stir up love of God in one another. When we gather together, the point of being here is, is to encourage one another, support one another, pray with one another, hold each other accountable, encourage each other in our walks with the Lord. That's a beautiful part of the church. If we just come in here and we don't talk to anybody, we don't get to know anybody, we're missing out on such a, a big part of why the church exists, why God created it. We're meant to serve one another. We'll talk about this in a couple weeks, so I won't get into that. But we're meant to serve one another when we gather. We're meant to listen to and study the word. This is why we preach. It's not just so I can be up here talking to you for 45 longer than that. No, I know. You're like, Travis, you've never gone 45. I know. I know. I try, and it never works out. It's not meant for me to just get up here and talk. I don't, you can ask my wife. I don't love talking this much. Like, that is not how God has wired me. And I don't like the attention, all right? That's not why I'm up here. That's not why I preach for as long as we do, we, we want to dig into God's word and seek to really understand and live in obedience to it. This is how God has revealed himself to us. And when he calls his people to gather together, we are to learn from God. We're to hear from God. We're to dig into God's word. That's why we preach. That's why we dig into scriptures. That's why we dig into books of the Bible, right? Because we want to learn from God. We want to see God. We pray for one another. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is very powerful in its effect. We're to pray with one another, pray for one another. We're to, we're to bring our needs before one another, right? That's how we encourage as well. Like I, I can't encourage you if I don't know anything about you and you can't encourage me and pray for me if you don't know what's really going on in my lives. This is what we're supposed to do. When we gather, we, we pray for and with one another. We practice the, the ordinances, right? God told the church to do two things when we gather, baptize and, and have communion and celebrate the Lord's Supper. That's why we do it every single week, right? That's why we have communion every single week. Not only because the Lord has commanded us, but, but again, this is a, a means of stepping into his presence. Communion comes from the word commune. 
to be with God in relationship, in fellowship with him. That's why we take the bread and drink the cup. It's to remember and celebrate and, and be with our savior. And then giving, and we'll, well, again, we'll talk about this in a couple weeks. I'm not gonna tell you when, because I'm sure that'll be the week that you're out of town. I know how it works. I know how it is, but we will talk about it. It'll be a surprise. You're like, well, I'm just missing the next month. Okay, that's fine. That's fine. Do what you gotta do. But we give. This is what we see throughout the book of Acts, right? We, when the, the people of God gather together, they give. Why? To meet the needs of the church and support the work and the ministry of the Lord. That's why we give. Thank you. We'll talk about, we'll dig into that in a little bit. But these, these are ways that we worship. Like I go on and on about ways that we worship in scripture. There are so many, but when we gather together, we worship God. So how can we as individual believers and, and together as a body cultivate worship as a spiritual discipline? Let me give you four thoughts as we end today. First way to do it is examine your heart. Again, worship starts in your heart. It starts with your attention. It starts with your focus. It starts with your love and desires and adoration. Examine your heart every moment of every day. What are you worshiping? What are we beholding? What am I giving my life to? What do I want more in this moment, right here, right now? Is it Jesus and his ways or is it something else? When it's something else, we tear down that throne, we tear down that idol and we direct our worship back to God. Examine your heart. Practice the spiritual disciplines. Another way we do this is practice spiritual disciplines. Look, the more you dig into scripture, the more you read and meditate and pray and fast, all these things that we've been talking about, the more you do that, that love for God is gonna cultivate and grow. And like when you read your Bible, when you pray, it's like, it's like pouring water on a seed and giving sunlight to that seed of, of your love for God. And it, and it grows and it blossoms and it flourishes when we practice the spiritual disciplines. So if you're not feeling much like an adoration of God, you're like, man, I'm not, I'm not really worshiping. Well, how are you spending your time? What's your Bible reading been like lately? What's your prayer life been like lately? Like we talked about last week, maybe you just need to go into this, you know, a day or two or whatever, a period of, of fasting and just crying out to God, like, Lord, would you, would you do something? Would you bring me back to you? The more we do these things, the more our love and adoration grows. Another way, come to worship. Real simple. You want to you grow in your worship of God? Come, be here with the people of God. Be here. And look, here's what I always say to people. I want each and every one of you to be here at Haynes Creek forever. All right, that's just my personal Travis's prayer. Just so y'all know, that's my prayer. I want y'all here. I want you to be here. I want you to be fully a part of this body of Christ. But, but I know, I know that that's not always the case. So here's my just personal advice to you. Be somewhere that you can fully engage and be a part of the body. If that's here, praise God. I would love that. That's my hope and prayer is that you would make that place here, that you would be here, a part of this body. But if it's not, if you're like, man, Travis, it's just, I can't, I can't do it for whatever reason. I mean, there's any, any number of reasons, some good, some bad, that people leave churches and go somewhere else. That's up to you and God. But my my call to you, my prayer for you is that you would be at a place where you can fully commit and be bought in. And look, we're not, just so you know, if you're looking for the perfect church, doesn't exist, all right? Not gonna exist. And as soon as you show up, it's gonna be imperfect because none of us are perfect, right? Like that's just not how it works. You're not gonna find the perfect church. You're not gonna find the perfect body of believers. So don't be looking for that. Be where God wants you. And if that's here, if, if you're like, no, Haynes Creek is my church. I'm here. I'm committed to this place. Be here. Come on Sunday. 
be a part of the body. And when you come, come with expectancy, right? Come in the door expecting to actually meet God, be with God, and hear from God. Because that's what God wants to do. When we gather together as the people of God, God, the Holy Spirit, they are here with us all the time. I mean, sometimes we're just coming in and we're like, ah, well, you know, I'm here. It is what it is. Ah, sure, another Sunday. Here we go, whatever. We don't come in with this expectancy to actually meet and be and experience the presence of God. Come with an expectancy, church. When we gather, let's expect God to meet us here and do something in our hearts and lives and work in our hearts and lives and draw us deeper into him. So come and come with expectancy. And then fourthly, participate in worship. Participate in worship. Like, like be an active member of the body, right? Come, sing, serve, give. Come ready to hear and learn from God. That's why I encourage you to take notes and bring your Bibles. Yeah, you can look at it on your phone, sure, if that helps you focus. But sometimes you might, okay, let me get off of this and open that app that I really want to scroll through and check. So like, whatever helps you focus, all right? If it's your phone, your iPad, great. If it's the actual Bible, awesome, great. Whatever you got to do, right? Whatever you got to do but come ready to learn. Come ready to, to hear from God and direct your heart and your worship to him, right? So come and participate in worship. And be not just a member of the body, be an active member of the body. And look, ultimately, we worship because of Jesus, right? We worship because of Jesus. We worship because of what he's done for us. And as, as we end today, I wanna, I wanna read from Revelation chapter five, this continues the same scene that John found himself in in chapter four, but as he's before the throne, another person comes in and this person is the lamb of God. It's Jesus. And here's what happens when he comes in. Verse eight, when he took the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and golden bowls filled with incense draw the prayers of the saints and they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slaughtered and you purchased people for God by your blood from every tribe and language and people and nation. You made them a kingdom and priest to our God and they will reign on the earth. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne and also of the living creatures and the elders. Their number was countless thousands plus thousands of thousands. And they said with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slaughtered to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven on earth and under the earth and on the scene, everything in them say blessing and honor and glory and power be to the one seated on the throne and to the lamb forever and ever. The four living creatures said amen and the elders fell down and worshiped. Church, let us join in with the chorus of heaven and cry out holy and worthy is the lamb. This is all because of Jesus. Everything we have is because of Jesus, our salvation, our forgiveness, the grace and mercy, our promise of eternal life. It is all because of Jesus, church. Why do we worship? Jesus. Who do we worship? Jesus. Let us worship and adore and give our lives to the Lamb of God, to the one on the throne. Let me pray for us and we're gonna step into a time of worship and communion. Really, this is all worship, right? Our singing, our prayer time, communion, it's all worship. I encourage you to take some time in your seats. 
prepare your hearts, right? Maybe you need to spend some time repenting of those other thrones that you've been worshiping at, the love and desire you have for the things of this world rather than for God and direct your worship and your heart back to him. Maybe you need to spend some time just in awe of who our God is. Maybe today's open up your eyes to see him in a new way, to see what ultimate reality is really like. And you should just spend some time just going, God, you're awesome. You're amazing. You're incredible. And church, as you're ready, we go to the tables. We take the bread, we drink the cup, and we step into the presence of our Savior and we worship him. And church, as you come back to your seats, it's an opportunity to participate in that worship, to stand and sing, and maybe even raise your hands a little bit if you want to. Maybe clap. Maybe just bow in your seats before the Lord or come before here, however the Lord directs. Respond in worship and pray for us. Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for all that you've done and all that you are. Lord, we thank you for your salvation, for your grace and your mercy, Lord. And and we do, we we want to give you all the love and praise and honor and glory, Lord. You, You are worthy. Lord, help us see you as worthy. You are far more worthy of our praise and worship and devotion than the things of this world, Lord. Grow us, help us, Lord. Help us cultivate a heart of worship, a life of worship for you, a, a, a church that is committed to worshiping you, Jesus. We ask all this in your name we pray, amen.